Well, welcome back to our, pretty close to our end. We're going to have two sessions today. They'll just be one hour sessions. I don't know if you were aware of that. So session number 11, we'll complete our look at chapter 6. We were looking at the seal judgments and probably get into chapter 7, which would include the 144,000. <clears> we need to open it with a prayer. Father, we do praise you again for your revelation and as this morning we looked at things that are just so far removed from our experience in terms of what will happen in the future, yet we were reminded that these things must take place and as part of your process of dealing with evil. And we uh, need to align our hearts and our minds to what you have revealed in order that we may uh, be the blessed from you or receive the blessing from you. So we just pray as we have that uh, you would have your way amongst us and that we would uh, be able to see things in your word that uh, are true to your word and accurate. And I just pray for communication. I also pray that we might have alertness in the afternoon hour after eating a big lunch that we would uh, stay alert and that uh, that would be your work. So we commit our time asking that you would have your way this afternoon in Jesus name. Amen. If you had already turned to chapter 6, we, uh, between what Jesus teaches in the Olivet Discourse, and what I've done is used the same timeline that we've looked at before, and I'm superimposing, or not, uh, I don't think it's a forced superimposition, but I think this is the chronology that Jesus lays out. And this morning I didn't have time to give it too much detail, and I'm not going to give it a lot now, but just a little bit more, and also by way of reminder. <clears throat> so, in the Olivet Discourse and in the parallel passages in the other Gospels, uh, I, I reminded everyone that uh, this is Jewish eschatology, and the Olivet Discourse is Jewish. It's, it has nothing to do with the church. The church is not even a thought in the disciples' minds. And I made the point that it's not even through halfway through the book of Acts that the disciples are begin to, beginning to put together what the church really is. In the thinking of the disciples, the, the, the church is just nothing more than an extension or a sequel to Israel. And they're thinking in terms of uh, Jewish eschatology. And they're thinking, they're thinking of the kingdom, which that's Jewish. Now, the church has a part in it, but it's predominantly Israel that is the, the focus. So, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is, is basically explaining in that sermon, if you will, on the Mount of Olives, why the kingdom is will be delayed. And to give them a... Jewish eschatology and Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is a condensed version of the book of Revelation. We have all of the parallels of the major events in the Olivet Discourse that the book of Revelation expands and gives us fuller detail. And the chronology is the same, so it fits this time timeline, which is the Jewish 
70th week of Daniel, uh, Jesus identifies, I think, the first uh, three and a half years. He describes them in verses 4 through 14 as the beginning of birth pangs. In other words, these are the things that will take place, beginning of birth pangs. Then he identifies the last half, uh, beginning in verse 15 or 16 to verse 29, as great tribulation. In fact, so severe that had the days not been cut short, uh, no one would survive. The parallel is we saw the first seal judgment relating to, and I probably, Lindsay and I were talking about it, we, I probably wasn't as clear as I could have been in terms of, I don't think necessarily the horseman is the Antichrist. In other words, these are images, these are things that John sees. Uh, so he sees a white horse, and that white horse is kind of a picture or an image of conditions or situations that are going to take place on planet Earth. Uh, it was most evident when we looked at the one, what was it, the third one that dealt with the, the famine. Uh, John doesn't even reveal the image or the uh, the revelation. The, the horse is there, but he doesn't tell us what is there. What he tells us is what he hears a voice speaking. And that represents conditions that we looked at in terms of famine. So Jesus speaks in uh, verses 4 and 5 of Matthew 24 of Christ's false Christ and antichrist or false Christ and Christ. And then in uh, the same sequence, basically uh, the next issue that we have in the book of Revelation, he deals with uh, war in 6 and 7, wars and rumors of wars. And next he deals with famine. <clears throat> and in the book of Revelation, we have an extension of that. Uh, what you expect from war and famine is death, which is not present in the Olivet Discourse. It's missing, but he does go to the fifth seal in that he speaks of martyrdom and suffering and persecution. Uh, that's in verse 9. And the, uh, the last parallel are these cataclysms in verse 29. And if you compare the cataclysms, they're the same, virtually the same as what you have in the book of Revelation, the sixth seal. And because of that, the way I view the six seal judgments, we won't have time to develop a chronology of this time frame but there's a variety of view, well, not a variety, but there's a, two or three views as to how, what is the sequence of events? Uh, in other words, what is the chronology of events that occur during that seven year period of time? The, the book of Revelation is not crystal clear, particularly in reference. These are the seal judgments. Well, are the uh, trumpet judgments sequential? In other words, you have six seal judgments and now you have seven trumpet judgments and then you have seven more bowl judgments in sequence, one following the other, one series following the other. Personally, I feel better in terms of seeing them somewhat parallel. I think the trumpet judgments start a little bit later, but they parallel and they kind of accumulate on one another towards the end where you have all three of them unfolding at the end. So I prefer to see the seal judgments as a uh, panoramic or an overview of the whole uh, period of time. Amy? What do you do with Matthew 24, 8? That it says that all these things 
in the beginning. Yeah, that's that's one of the problems with this sequential thing. Uh, I think the evidence in terms of these cataclysms is too conclusive. There's there's just too many detail in there that you have to you have to put it f too far forward. And uh, you have the same ones in some of the uh, I think the bold judgments. You see, you have the same identification of these cataclysmic cosmic effects as well. But you pointed out one of the weaknesses of this this view. All of them, you know, you have to compromise something somewhere. And uh, I just feel more comfortable to see uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, as describing the same events. And that, in Jesus' words, are immediately preceding the second coming. Uh, does that make sense? Uh, we won't have time to develop the rest of the chronology. So I see verses 15 through 29 as a description of the last half. The, the, the middle is very significant. In fact, I should put verse 15 in the middle there. Jesus alludes to Daniel. In fact, we'll look at Daniel in a moment here. And then we have the second coming, which is described in verse 30 and 31 in Matthew's account right here. And we have a thousand years. So that's chapter 20. So you have verse nine, or chapter 19, the second coming. Chapter 20, the thousand years. In fact, the book of Revelation is the only place in all of Scripture that it identifies that the kingdom is millennial. There's no Old Testament passage. It's just the book of Revelation. And like I said, I take the numbers literally, and I think they're especially emphasized. It, it occurs six times in chapter 20, uh, references to the kingdom as a thousand years. And then I would put in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. So I would put chapter 25 of Matthew. What did I say? Matthew 25? Okay, I would put Matthew 25 as in parable form. Jesus is at least identifying the beginning of the millennial kingdom. He, he gives parables of the kingdom if you look at chapter 25 verse 1. And they're primarily at the beginning because they're the judgments that precede and I think the first two deal with Israel. In other words, Israel, there's going to be a separation in Israel. Not all Israelites will enter into the kingdom. And he even deals, I think the second parable is one that deals with uh, how they respond during the millennial kingdom. Just like uh, positions that we will occupy during the kingdom are dependent on how we live today. So also that second parable, uh, the parable of the talents, I think deals with how does Israel respond during this tribulation period? And they will have different position in the millennial kingdom as well. So one of them, I think, deals with regeneration and the other one deal, deals with kind of lifestyle issues. Then the third one is the separation of the sheep and the goats. That one is a judgment that separates the nations. The nations have a part in the millennial kingdom as well. And then chapters 21 and 22, I see uh, a description of the eternal state. So you do see kind of a chronology, but in terms of some of the detail, uh, it's not real clear in the book of Revelation. Any questions on that before I get rid of it? Or did I already get rid of it? <laughs> Make sense? Uh, the point I'm making mainly is in terms of chronology, I will see chapter 6 as kind of a it's almost introductory in that we have kind of a broad picture uh, of this period of time. 
And there's a lot of inter well, not, not a lot, but there's a few interludes as well. In other words, there's a break from uh, the action, if you will, or from the chronology. And chapter 7 is a break. Uh, it gives them more information about the period of time. Uh, whereas probably these uh, seal judgments and the trumpet judgments are probably sequential. And they probably give a, a period of time uh, when that period uh, actually occurs is not easily to ident- as easily to identify. What, what seal are the is that the sixth. Yeah, we'll get to that. A couple of implications of pretty much what we talked about this morning: just the necessity of judgment. I gave a little exposition or introduction to judgment, and we stressed the necessity of it, and God orchestrating it. We also stress uh, we're, we're seeing the outworking and fulfillment of a broad plan. And most of it is a broad plan dealing with Israel. It's God's eschatological program that primarily deals with the nation of Israel. We will also see what's going on in chapter 6 is part of the judgment on the nations. All of the world is involved. The last judgment that we saw, one quarter of, uh, of humanity is destroyed. They're dead. Death. And it gives a specific proportion there. One third. Uh, so if you compare today, I'm not saying that that's how many will actually die. Uh, there may be some other events where the population may either be larger or smaller than today. But today, if, if it would happen today, at 7 billion, we... Flash the number up there, 1.75 billion people are destroyed at this point in the tribulation. And this may be close to the midpoint. I'm not sure exactly. We don't have a chronology. I just see them somewhat sequential. So this is part of the outworking of the judgment of the nations. As we work further in, we're going to see that God has a program, uh, obviously for Israel, God has a program, obviously, for the church. This predominantly, the book of Revelation is predominantly the program of Israel. But secondarily, God also has a program for the nations, and the nations will participate in the millennial kingdom. So God is going to deal with the nations as well. Uh, Somebody asked, uh, what about the saints? I think it was Travis that asked, uh, what about the saints that occur during this period of time. In other words, those that believe during the seven-year period. Are they members of the church? And I would say no. Uh, In terms of being strictly dispensational, they have to fit into a different category because the church is gone. So it's more like an Old Testament saint. And there's some other things that kind of add to that conclusion. So the believers during this period of time are more analogous to Old Testament saints than than, uh, New Testament saints in terms of church believers. Uh, So what we're talking about is we're talking about salvation of people related to the nations along with the salvation of Israel as well. And it seems in the kingdom, the nations seem to somehow uh, have uh, a national part, if you will. So those that are saved during this tribulation period from Egypt or from Africa or wherever... They seem to have some sort of a tie-in. At least that's kind of an implication. It doesn't say it specifically. 
Does that make sense? So God has a program for the nations, but during this period of time, He is judging the nations. So these cataclysms are part of that judgment process of the nations and the earth as well. The earth is involved in the judgment. So that's an implication that's not uh, totally evident from the text. Not sure what went wrong there. Hmm. I don't have a blank slide there. Anyway, let's look at the the fifth seal or yeah fifth seal judgment in chapter six, beginning in verse nine. Now this kind of breaks away the first four the the horsemen clearly on the earth. But then in verse 9, and when he broke the fifth seal, and by the way, it kind of breaks the pattern. Now we're no longer dealing with judgments associated with horsemen. This fifth one is is different. We'll, We'll also notice when we get to the trumpet judgments, they fit a similar pattern in that the first four also have some similarities to them. And then the last three are 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 different. Uh, the first four of the trumpet judgments, they come in thirds. A third of the waters are destroyed. A third of the earth is destroyed. A third of this is destroyed. So you have the, the kind of the pattern broken in verse 9 in terms of the horsemen. So we only have the four horsemen that we dealt with this morning. And now in verse 9, And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain, because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Now, uh, the question is, what is this altar and where is this altar? If you keep working your way through verse 10 and 11, uh, the conclusion I come to is it appears to be a heavenly altar. So here's one of those shifts that I mentioned earlier. You have to keep track. Remember we said in chapter 4, this is a heavenly scene. And you have to kind of keep track of where these things are going on to properly understand and interpret. Chapter 6 seems to be earth, at least until you get to verse 8. And now in verse 9, when he broke the fifth seal, he's looking at some altar. And underneath it, he's seeing the souls of those who had been slain. So they're dead. So this appears to be a heavenly altar that is the counterpart, I guess, of the uh, Jewish earthly altar. And there are two altars. So the question, which one is it? And some of the details seem to point to the uh, there's the altar of incense and then there's the altar of burnt offering. So which one is it? Let's look at the details as we work our way through. So these, first of all, before we identify it, well, let me identify it. I think it's the altar of burnt offering because of the description of the the blood of the slain poured out in verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, wait a minute, let's see. We're just talking about the blood. And when he broke the fifth seal. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think I have uh, verse 9 in in mind. In that the souls of those had been slain and their blood is shed. 
it's the altar. It's the burnt. Al- uh, it's the altar of burnt offering is where the priest would pour the the, the blood uh, on the bottom there, and there's not blood associated with the altar of incense. So uh, it, it seems that. If there's two altars in heaven, the one that would be the counterpart of the earthly one would be the altar of burnt offering. Yeah, verse 10, they cry out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Uh, It seems best to take this as a heavenly scene and there's... A cry to God. These are martyrs. These are people that have died, as it says. They've been slain. Uh, these are believers. They've been slain because of the word of God. In fact, notice the similarity there. Uh, John, remember, he's on the island because of the word of God and because of the testimony which he maintained. Uh, very similar. So these uh, Phraseologies are uh, kind of paralleling paralleling each other. So these are faithful believers uh, who have proclaimed the word, have taught the word, have preached the word. They've stood up. There's the word testimony again. They've given testimony like in a court. Remember the word that we talked about in one of our other sessions? These these have given testimony and these are martyrs. They have died as a result of it here. So in the future, there will be people that when they give testimony, it's going to cost them. And it's going to be the most difficult time ever that uh, believers have ever experienced on the face of the earth. During this period of time, most of the believers are going to be uh, martyred. And here we have the first group of them, at least. Now, it may, there might be some parallels in some of the other passages that refer to the martyrs, but at least we have this fifth seal as martyrs that uh, are underneath the altar. Now, the cry here bothers some of the commentators, uh, particularly the request for vengeance. It almost seems unchristian, right? <laughs> Is that the Christian thing to do? <clears throat> well, in the context of the Yes, okay. I'm glad I had a nod over there. (laughs) Ex-Marine. Kill those guys. (laughs) Yep, that's right. It's biblical. Um, In the book of Revelation, God is dealing in a final way with the issues of evil and sin, and part of that is pouring out judgment and wrath. And these saints... They have a clearer picture than saints on earth, if in fact this is the proper interpretation. If they're under a heavenly altar, then their eyes are probably seeing and know more than what they did before they were martyred. So they have a clearer picture of the justice of God, the character of God, the grace of God, all all of the the, uh, attributes or perfections of God. And I think accurately what they are doing is asking for God to basically complete his uh, just work of judgment. Uh, And they're waiting there. But this is not even surprising. This should not be surprising to us, even though in our culture, uh, most people don't like judgment. So 
some of the commentators go along with that weak view of, of judgment. Uh, I think what we have here is nothing different than what you have in some of the psalms that we describe as imprecatory psalms where the psalmists do the same thing. They're, they're, they're asking God to do severe work. Uh, psalm 50, uh, 21, These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you, you and state the case in order before your eyes. That doesn't sound like the verse I had in mind. Okay, here's some imprecatory psalms. Uh, Psalm 79.10 Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been slain. In fact, their words in uh, Revelation may be even something of an encapsulation of this passage in Psalm 79. Or Psalm 94, verses 1 and 2, O Lord, God of vengeance. And it says it again, God of vengeance. Shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. In other words, pour out your wrath, pour out your judgment. Let it come. This is the psalmist. So, I think if we have an understanding of justice, uh, even though this is a, a horrendous thing to think of what God is doing in this period of time, uh, we need to have that perspective that I tried to lay the foundation for of what is the justice of God all about. The justice of God is he is resolving the issue of evil and sin and death. And an understanding of biblical justice uh, includes the severity of what God has to do to deal with sin and evil. Our tendency, and certainly our culture's tendency, is to minimize what sin has done and minimize the, the drastic thing that God must do to deal with sin. We get a glimpse of it in that he put his only son on the cross to bear the sins of the world and turned his back on the sinless one. So sin requires drastic action. And when we speak of God's vengeance... It's not in the same vein as we would describe when we take out vengeance. In other, words. in other words, we pay back. Now, there's a sense in which God pays back, but it's just and it's right and it's wise and it's good. And it even includes grace. So, when they, the psalmists cry out in this way, uh, like the Psalm 64 passage, uh, another verse in verse 23 he has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. The Lord God, the Lord our God, will destroy them. This is in the same psalm. It just emphasizes the severity and the, uh, uh, the extent that God must, because of the nature of sin, must deal with sin. And this is what is going on in the book of Revelation. This is why it has to be so severe. Uh, our culture, this is just so foreign to our culture that the book of Revelation just kind of overwhelms them. That's why they don't read it. 
Uh, we see this in the prophets. The pro- not only the, the Psalms, but the prophets uh, consistently uh, on many... I've got several listed here. Uh, Isaiah 61.2, 63.4, Jeremiah 46.10, Micah 5.15, Nahum uh, 1.2, Malachi 4.1-2. So, many of the, the prophets similarly cry out to God to bring... Uh, judgment. Uh, I'll read Isaiah 34, 1 through 3. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all of their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. Now, I think that's looking future. He has given them over to slaughter. To their slain, their, so their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will be will give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. That's a pretty image description of God's vengeance. Uh, same chapter, verse eight. For the Lord has a day of vengeance and a year of recompense. For the cause of science, or Zion, rather. This afternoon, I'm going to fall asleep on you. Uh, A year of recompense for the cause of Zion. There's a purpose behind all of this. It's not purposeless, it is purposeful. And there's several others, but this gives you a a flavor. Uh, Even Romans 12.19 in the New Testament. Uh, You're familiar with that one. Um, Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So, they're basically crying out here that God will complete His work of judgment that is is necessary, because they know that uh, if God does not deal with sin and evil, then Sin and evil must continue, and from the biblical worldview, sin and evil must have the uh, future boundary, or it must be uh, dealt with. And that's what the book of Revelation is doing, is God is completing dealing with evil. So it's an appropriate cry when they cry out for vengeance. And when God pours out vengeance, remember it's righteous. When we avenge ourselves, it's usually in sin. So the question is, how long? And then verse 11, And there was given to each of them a white robe, consistently in the book of Revelation, uh, representing their regeneration, their salvation, the cleansing of the forgiveness of sin. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. So there's, there's a time frame, there's a plan, there, there are events that are on the schedule. So, for a while longer, and from the perspective of history, we're talking about uh, all of this is taking place within a seven-year period of time. So, for a while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. So, this is just the beginning. There will be others that will be martyred. 
In fact, apart from protection, divine protection, uh, people are extremely vulnerable in this period of time. You see hints of this uh, in several passages. Uh, there's going to be not only anti-Semitism, but there's going to be uh, all uh, hell breakout for the believer as well. Anyone that names the name of Christ, anyone that is Jewish, is is extremely vulnerable. That's why when we get to chapter 7, uh, God will actually supernaturally protect a whole group. And I take it that he protects them in, in terms of the judgments that come and they will survive the great tribulation. So there will at least be 144,000 Jews that will survive the great tribulation. Yes, um, I think the first seal, that's just the beginning of his whole, uh, we do have some numbers giving, uh, whether it's the first part or the second part, but I think he rises to power, it, just to kind of look ahead a little bit, just to answer your question. No, I was not quite done. Uh, just, just looking ahead, uh, I think he comes on the, the scene uh, and he seemingly solves the world's major problems, the Middle East problem. Uh, he gains in popularity. Uh, you have to put together some of the Daniel passages where he seems to take control of a ten-nation confederacy, if you want to call it that. And then from that, that seems to be his base, he rises to prominence such as the whole world worships him. So he, takes, he becomes a world dictator. Uh, you see a description of that in chapter 13. And it specifically says the whole world basically worships him. And I think in my putting together of the chronology, it seems that that's kind of the high point. After that, his kingdom begins to unravel. The high point is at the middle. And that's a crucial time. Daniel gives that as a crucial time. Uh, that's when he breaks the covenant. And I think... Uh, the parallel with that is Second Thessalonians chapter 2. That's when he sets himself up as God in the temple. And that's what Jesus is describing when he says the abomination that makes desolate that Daniel referred to. So is he the one that's causing this martyrdom? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, his kingdom. Yes, I would. Uh, uh, there's also another theme... There's angelic conflict, so there's there's demonic forces as well. There's satanic forces, uh, and you put on top of that just the flesh of mankind, and all that's just going to let loose. In other words, God is letting sin run its course, and it's at the end of the running of the course of of sin. So probably a combination of everything, just mankind and conditions, and uh, if you're under famine conditions. Uh, people are just going to kill people just for food, and if you're a believer, you're, you know, you're going to die. All right, you're going to be the first target <clears throat> because you're you, you're going against the system. You know, they're going to blame you for the famine. Okay, so the fifth seal, uh, and notice again in verse eleven, there was given to each of them a white robe. There's that didomai again. And by the way, when it's in chapter 6, it's in the passive. In other words, this is something that's 
uh, not their working. And the big point that I was making this morning was uh, we saw this word in every one of the seals, uh, Drew, uh, this morning. And the point I was making is these are not just events that are happening. Uh, there's a hand behind that is orchestrating all these things. And we saw this consistently, and here it is again. Now, in this case, it's in relationship to the martyrs, but we have the idea that there's more that's going on than just what you can see on the surface there. So, there was given to each one of them these white robes. They were told that they should rest a little while longer. So, this is just the beginning. Uh, verse 12. Uh, so, that's the... Well, I didn't even finish here. That's the fifth seal. I think it's a heavenly scene. It's, Summarize what I've already said. We talked about the altar and uh, the essence of it deals with martyrs. And just to give another vivid scene, that's going to be common, that kind of situation. The world is going to hate the believer. So we have peace epitomized or maybe even personified. That was a word that Lindsay was using in the first horseman. We have war in the second one. We have famine. We have death. We have martyrs. You didn't like the twinkle in the eye of the... Okay. Special effects. Wow. Okay. Okay, verse 12. And I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, notice again, he's, he's, he's telling us what he sees here. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, who's the he, by the way? The lamb, consistently. When he broke the sixth seal, there was a, and there was a great earthquake... And the sun became black as sackcloth, made of hair. Now, there's a simile there. Black as sackcloth, made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, became like blood, didn't turn into blood. Take it literally. It's a simile. In other words, probably appearance. So, we have an earthquake. We have geophysical Phenomenon, and we have astrophysical phenomenon, not only the earthquake. Uh, these are just scenes of what will be common, just to kind of, in our mind, I've been encouraging you just, this is very visual, and as you think about these scenes, think of things like this. This is actually the recent uh, tsunami that hit Japan, and notice this wave in the next one. I didn't take these, obviously. <laughs> but uh, this is going to be common. And the tsunamis are usually as a result of earthquakes in the ocean. And uh, things like this are going to be common. So what, what uh, Japan experienced, you're going to see this happening all over the place. And this is on top of wars. This is on top of all the other things that we'll see in some of the other judgments as well. Uh, there's going to be uh, astrophysical bodies striking the earth in some of the other judgments. So we have earthquakes. Uh, we have the sun being affected. The moon is affected. 
scenes like that, perhaps. Uh, Moon-like blood. I'm trying to convey that. Things falling out of the sky. And also, as we keep reading, <clears throat> and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And now we have an image as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. So if you think of a fig tree, think of a great wind, rips all of the figs off of it and they're just cast to the ground. So he's making a little comparison. But in, uh, in reality, it's going to be like stars, uh, more than one falling from heaven. Now, the Greek word austere uh, does uh, they, it didn't distinguish, and maybe they didn't scientifically uh, distinguish between planets, between uh, stars that are far into the Milky Way. So these stars are heavenly bodies, essentially. In fact, I don't think I have the word study with me, but <clears throat> uh, there's specific verses that uh, indicate that. And. One of them was the, the star of Christ. What was that? Uh, it probably was not a star that was in the distant galaxies. It's probably something close by. It may probably a supernatural, but it was a heavenly body. The point I'm making is that word is, is not a technical reference to what we consider other suns elsewhere in the Milky Way. It could be an asteroid. This is probably what these are, is asteroids or possibly comets. And you're going to have these things falling to the earth with the image of like a fig tree casting figs in a great wind. So the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. So there's another image. The sky is going to wrap up and the image that he uses is like a scroll. And they were familiar with scrolls. So you, you got a scroll stretched out, let loose of it, and it snaps together. So use that imagery. Hmm? <laughs> you like that. <clears throat> so the sky is split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And also every mountain and island were removed out of their place. So we have... Things in the sky, the sky itself rolled up. I'm trying to picture what you can see there. Put these images in your mind. Mountains and islands. So, uh, volcanic action, tectonic action, geophysical things, astrophysical things. It's going to be a horrendous time. And if all of these things are happening, and this is just one seal, I have a hard time putting this in the middle. This is the reason. I have a hard time putting it uh, in the middle and seeing the, the other judgments after this. Because once you get this thing going, uh, there's not much going to be left. If you look at the parallel, let, let's read that Matthew chapter 24 uh, passage that it, it is very similar. In verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, notice after the tribulation of the, in other words, this is the end. This is after all the other things that he's described in the tribulation. 
the sun will be darkened. See the similarity? And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. We have all this in the sixth seal judgment there. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Uh, John describes it as the sky rolled up like a scroll. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, etc. Then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. I think, you know, once these things begin to accumulate, uh, we're at the end of this tribulation. That's why I prefer, it, it se- this seems to fit better in terms of having it end in the middle somewhere and then have another series and then a third series. I think they parallel uh, one another. Uh, also, uh, notice these other passages and, and I think the Joel passage the Joel passage is, is quoted in uh, uh, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And these didn't happen then. Uh, Luke is seeing, or Peter is seeing a partial fulfillment of the Joel passage, and he includes it in the text. But what he's focusing in on is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But some of the phenomenon in Joel 2, uh, actually beginning in verse 10, and then I'll skip down to verse 30, which I think uh, Peter quotes. In Joel 2, uh, verse 10 and 11, Before them the earth quakes, earthquake, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? I think Jesus alludes either to Joel or maybe some of these other passages. It's not totally clear to me which one, maybe uh, because they're so so similar. Uh, Let me read Joel 2.30-31. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But Joel isn't the only one. Isaiah 13.10 For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Verse 13 Therefore I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. Zechariah 14.6 And it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. So, astrophysical phenomenon. Uh, Zephaniah 1.15-16 A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness. The sun is going to be affected. And gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And there's other passages as well uh, in Jeremiah and other prophets. Uh, So this is going to be a horrendous time. Cataclysms. That's the sixth bowl judgment. 
Uh, as I said, you might expect people to respond. And I think people will. I think people will recognize. Uh, God will use these. And I think he will use these in uh, the experience of the Israelites. I think they will be awakened and they will see that uh, God is doing a great work here. Some of them will be reminded of their eschatology. They will be reminded that these things must take place. And some of them uh, will turn to the Messiah, their, their true Messiah. But what happens to probably the majority of people? Verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great men, so leaders... Kings and great men, politicians, and the commanders, military people, and the rich, we have wealthy here, the strong, those that uh, have power, and also the lowly, every slave and free man. What do they do? They bow down and worship God? Not in this context. Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Why do they hide themselves? Verse 16, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us. They prefer death, maybe, or at least shielding of some sort from the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne. And they're aware. They're, they're not, as I said this morning, they, they know what's going on uh, and they know the source of it. Uh, I think Revelation is clear enough that they have concluded uh, that this is coming from a throne. And it's the heavenly throne that we looked at in chapters 4 and 5. And specifically, they're aware of the Trinity from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. So it's from the one who sits on the throne and... From the wrath of the Lamb. Both. So the, the Lamb comes with wrath. And this may be John's commentary in terms of the Lamb, but it almost appears that they're even aware that this is the same personage as died on the cross. He's identified as the Lamb. So there's not repentance here. And they acknowledge the greatness of the day for the great day of their wrath both the one that sits on the throne and the Lamb, has come and who is able to stand. No one is able to stand. So that's how chapter 6 basically ends. Those are the sealed judgments. Now the seventh one will not uh, be open, the seventh seal, until chapter 8. We won't get to it. And it seems to contain the seven trumpet judgments. So, within the seventh seal judgment appears to be another series of judgments. These seem to be uh, more intense and more uh, perhaps uh, in a shorter period of time. I'm trying to think of the word. Um, anyway, shorter period of time. And I, I, I am inclined to think that most of them are probably the second half of that three and a half period. Some may begin before the end of the first three and a half. It doesn't tell us, so it's hard to put the chronology. So now it moves and we'll just begin chapter seven and then complete it uh, later on. What are some of the 
further implications, the necessity of judgment, the fulfillment of God's plan. We've touched on each of those. Uh, we've seen judge, these are judgments on the nations. Now, these geophysical events, these uh, human armies, these wars, these human agency judgments are all designed to bring the conversion of Israel. And now, chapter 7 breaks away from uh, probably the chronology. We have a little bit of an interlude. It seems to still be on the earth, but the scene changes. Still an earthly scene. And let's take a look at what it says in verse 1. After this, I saw. Now, he's not saying these things took place after these things. Okay? What he's saying, after this. In other words, after I saw these things, this is what I saw. He's giving us a chronology in terms of what he saw. At least that's how I take it. Does that make sense? Uh, after this, I saw. Uh, after I saw these six seal judgments, uh, to kind of expand what I think he's intending here. After I saw the six seal judgments, after that, this is what I saw. I saw four angels. Again, four angels. We've seen this over and over. We have an angelology in the book of Revelation. Uh, and in this case, what are they doing? What, what is uh, the instrumentality of God that is being used here in, terms, in, in reference to angels. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. What are they doing? And there's a hint, I think, at least, I think it's at least a hint of a time frame as well. What's the instrumentality here? Uh, not only do angel, are angels used by God as instruments of judgment and involved in the orchestrating of judgments, uh, not only are they observers and witnesses of revelation as the seven angels of the seven ch or seven churches, uh, not only do they do many of the other things that we mentioned, but here, what are they doing? Yeah, they're climatologists. <laughs> in fact, they're not climatologists. They're more than climatologists in that they are basically controlling the weather. Uh, I think God uses them and and He may even use them in our age as well. We, we, we have no idea what God, how God can use the instrumentality of angels in a physical sense. But here, very specifically, they are used to withhold the four winds of the earth so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Uh, I think what we, we have here is, is uh, all of this, remember, everything's on a calendar, everything's on a clock. So, a stage is being set here. Uh, I think what the illusion there is, is holding back judgments. It's, it's not just simply weather 
It's not just simply a description of weather, but I think as we read further, we'll see further evidence that we're talking about before the judgments begin to pour out. So I take it that these angels are restrainers of, of forces. And in this case, uh, kind of waiting for the right timing to let loose of some of these winds that will blow. Okay. Verse 2, and I saw, so he sees something else. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. Where is that? comes out of the east. Having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted. There's another little word of orchestration granted to harm the earth. There's the expansion there. To the four angels that we just looked at in verse 1. So those winds are not just climatology. Those winds are winds of judgment. Uh, So to these four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So damage is is, uh, restrained here. Uh, I think what it's hinting at is the time frame. I think this is before the judgments begin to fall. So this angel out of the east, uh, he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels. And this is what he says in verse 3, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea. Kind of a reiteration of what it says in, in, in verse 2. Do not harm the earth or the sea. So we have angels. This is also a hint at uh, perhaps, and we have evidence elsewhere, but here's a revelation hint that angels are uh, have a hierarchy. There are some that perhaps, some are more powerful than others. Some have positions of greater authority than others. Here's one angel that kind of directs other angels that submit to him. So, a little other piece in your angelology there. So, this angel kind of uh, directs the other angels and restrains them. Uh, And the time frame is, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. So, they will receive a probably a visible seal of some sort that imprints on their forehead. It's going to be identifiable. And that will be not only identifiable, but it will be something that uh, uh, in some way protects them. Uh, I think this is a protected group that will survive the tribulation. They are sealed. Uh, This will be brought out as we get further into the passage. And then verse 4 Uh, And we'll take a break after we look at verse 4 and continue in the next hour. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So God takes a little break from the judgment. Uh, The angel withholds the judgments. In order to prepare and and, uh, to set up a group, and we have a number, 144,000.
Actually, I jumped ahead in terms of our reading here. But uh, why don't we pick up here after the, the break and I'll catch up in review of what we've already jumped ahead to.